I don't know, uh, squirrel nest. I don't. <laughs> do squirrels nest? I don't. I don't, I don't even know. know. Yeah. I'm trying to think of other. Eh, they might nest. Hey there! Welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is October 29th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How you doing? Good. Brand new studio. We're in a new studio space, which is... Very exciting. On the line from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Sarah. How are you? Good. I'm sorry that you can't be in the new studio with us. Oh, my God. I actually, when I said, hey, Sarah... Uh, Siri somehow thought I was talking to her. <laughs> I had the same thing happen. So we just discovered that Neil and I play each other in fantasy football this coming week. I lost it's exciting. stupidly last week. I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you, Neil Payne. Okay, well, you should uh, uh, depart from your, your namesake quarterback, though, because Jared Goff is on bye next week. Oh, no. Does that mean I have to start Mitch Trubisky? It'll have to be oh Trubisky and running. That After is so our hilarious. Trubisky trade. This is my fault. I should have just kept Cousins. But isn't this just going to oh. come back to haunt me? Like, is Trubisky it? is going to have an amazing game because I traded him for Cousins and a Chipotle lunch. <laughs> this is the punishment I get. I'm still not sure who came out ahead in that trade. Mitch Trubisky, Mitch Trubisky shouldn't even be started in reality. <laughs> I know. Maybe I'll Bears. get lucky and they'll start Chase Daniel instead and I can quit grabbing yeah, right. the way Royer. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, how'd you do this week in fantasy? I, I was just uh, checking the old score here. <laughs> I lost by... <laughs> You're not like hanging you know, on with every Monday night. I got a lot of fantasy teams. Um, lost by four to Tony. Uh, can't be happy about that. He did not play a defense. <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, Tony, I'm a little insulted by. Fun fact... His non-existent defense outscored my defense, which got negative one points. On today's show, we will check in on what we've seen so far this season in the NFL. We'll address the Astros' front office scandal as the team barrels toward another World Series victory. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. We're halfway through the NFL season, and it's been a minute since we checked in on the league. Some of our early forecasts appear to be well on their way to becoming a reality. Is anyone surprised by the Patriots' dominance or by just how bad the Dolphins are? Uh, no. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But there are certainly some surprises as well. The undefeated San Francisco Niners. Here are Kay Adams and Nate Burleson discussing the Niners on the NFL Network's Good Morning Football. Power ranking the NFC, power ranking the NFL will be really, really tough this week because it's hard to put them above the Saints even though this was a quality win, guys. Did they prove they're the best team in the NFC? They could have proved that they're the best team in the NFL. Mm. I'm done waiting on the Niners to fall apart. Okay. I'm done waiting on this defense to get exposed. Okay. I'm done waiting on this offense um, to go out there and, and stub their toe and sputter for four quarters. I'm going to make a vow right now, like I do every few weeks, to not bet against the Niners. The Niners and the Patriots are the last remaining undefeated teams. Jeff, do you agree with Burleson that the Niners are the best team in the NFL? Um, No, (laughs) I don't. I'm I'm still going to go with the New England Patriots. Sure, sure. Well, uh, I know it's a real controversial Yeah, way to step out on a limb there. (laughs) Well, are the Niners the best team in the NFC? I'm also not so sure about that. I mean, look, I think the NFC is – it's – there's a pretty clear hierarchy. I think there's three teams who are just 
you know, the three front runners in San Francisco, Green Bay, and New Orleans. And then I think there's probably a notch down. I'll probably put in the Vikings and then, you know, some of these other contenders. But it really are like among those three teams, it's hard to say that they're better than those two. I think I think the Niners defense right now looks incredible. Bosa looks incredible. Um, I think they have probably the best coach in the NFC in Shanahan, and their play calling is excellent. The running game is excellent. I mean, yeah, they, they look really good. And it's funny thinking back in preseason when everyone was, like, really worried about Jimmy Garoppolo having bad preseason results. Remember, he, like, threw a bunch of picks and, like, didn't didn't complete a pass in one game, and, and everyone was, like, already, you know, just once again proving how irrelevant preseason is and we should abolish it but the Patriots I know and and look the Patriots obviously haven't beaten anyone um but the teams they've beaten they've absolutely crushed as a Jet fan I saw that firsthand along with the rest of America um they still by far they have the best coach we know that we know that you know he's already he's always like a couple steps ahead and you know he's probably already scheming the playoff game plan um so there's no reason to you know knock them down there's no reason to say any team is better than the Patriots until we see more well at the start of the season our model didn't think much of San Francisco in the preseason the Niners had a 1480 ELO rating we projected them to have a seven and nine season with a 28 percent chance of making the playoffs now they're up to a 1627 ELO a projected record of 13 and three and 92 percent chance of making the playoffs so Neil what did we miss well, so, you know, as Jeff alluded to, Jimmy Garoppolo, who, by the way, still has, he has, despite all of the 49er success, he's basically been average, uh, you know, in terms of his own uh, quarterbacking performance this year, which I think people are not necessarily realizing because they just assume when a team is winning like this, that the quarterback is playing well. And he's not playing poorly. He hasn't had any, like, out and out bad games but at the same time he hasn't been the driving force behind them winning so much uh and in fact in our model he's had five straight below average games they haven't been horrible games but they've still been below average or average at best they were coming off a season where they had they didn't even have garoppolo for the vast majority of the season and even when they did have them, uh, they, they went on that hot streak late in, in the 2017 season, but it wasn't a huge sample, didn't have a huge sample on Garoppolo as a potential star quarterback. And it's very difficult to predict defenses playing the way that the 49ers have played. And that's one of the reasons why I'm kind of with Jeff, uh, if we're looking forward and trying to say, like, is this actually the best team in the NFL or even the NFC? I'm skeptical of teams that don't have a very great passing attack and rely on their defense to get a lot of turnovers, a lot of scores, and just in general play really efficient defense because as we've seen, there's a lot of research that shows that defense is very ephemeral in the NFL and uh, the best predictor of a team's performance going forward is basically it's passing offensive efficiency. Uh, and so... Yeah, I think that's something when a team has an amazing breakout on the basis of their defense, it's something that's really difficult to predict. And it's also maybe not something that persists going forward. 
In terms of predicting defense, I think it's really hard to know how a rookie will perform. And Nick Bosa has been, you know, a contender for not just defensive rookie of the year, but defensive player of the year. Um, now, is that is he going to keep that up? That's hard to say. How will the defense play against stronger passing attacks? That's hard to say or better offensive lines, maybe. Yeah. And this team last year was 23rd in defense adjusted value over average at uh, Football Outsiders, which is a measure of defensive efficiency. And I know that they have a lot of these first round picks that they've kind of stacked onto their defense. And maybe that's the the recipe for kind of having this turnaround where you go from being an, uh, below average defense to being out of this world between seasons. But yeah, I think based on what we knew going into the season, you can't count on that. You know, with the model putting the new weight rightly on the quarterback performance, they don't really apply either, but considering how much they lean on the run, I mean, 272 rushing attempts in seven games, that's more than the Vikings, who we always mock for never passing, um, have in eight games. So they're really running the ball more than anyone, and a lot of that is you know, set up by Shanahan's play design and a lot of these sort of design runs that other defenses really don't seem prepared for. Look at just what Tevin Coleman did last week. They didn't even have Tevin Coleman for for half these games. So some of this is skewed by having a lead and protecting a lead. Obviously, you're going to run more, but the five teams that are running the most are the, the Niners, the Vikings, the Ravens, the Seahawks, the Patriots. I mean, it's working. Running is the new path. <laughs> How exciting. <laughs> well, the funny, fun for us. Yeah, the funny thing about the Patriots, uh, you know, when you were asking about which teams are actually the, the best in the league, and Jeff and I agree with this too, was like, Patriots are legit. Maybe the Niners aren't as legit. They've both been winning in very similar ways, yeah, defense and the and the run game uh, as as much as anything, and especially on defense. But we know that Tom Brady is at least capable. You know, we're we're more confident that when the Patriots need to execute passing the ball, Brady will be able to do that more so than Garoppolo. Probably. I, you know, and I get that point, and yet. Brady, we have no idea how much Brady's skills have declined. I mean, he hasn't done much this year. So do we know that he can still? They haven't needed him, but we assume he'll be there when they do. And I don't know if that's a fair assumption to make anymore. I mean, maybe, yeah. Like this season, he has he, he's had some pretty mediocre or average at best games. But he's also had good games. You know, yes, they haven't really played the strongest of competition, Literally but even anyone. after adjusting for the strength of competition, which our quarterback model does, he had a good game against Pittsburgh, good game against Washington, pretty good games against Miami, the Jets, and the Giants. Again, this <laughs> wow. is adjusting for the competition, though. The, the, all, all of this is uh, adjusting for the competition. His only bad game this year was against Buffalo, and you could say Buffalo is definitely the toughest defense that they've faced and the only team that really kind of slowed down the Patriots, and so... Maybe they have offered kind of a, a, a blueprint uh, and maybe some insight into, you know, what will beat the Patriots. But I'm guilty of this, too. And we all are because the top teams have played so many bad teams uh, of sort of acting like, well, these are easy teams to beat. The Dolphins don't want to win. 
the the Washington uh, football franchise is in constant disarray, and, and so it's just easy to beat these teams. But they are still NFL teams. You know, the Dolphins could still beat Alabama. Uh, you know, handily uh, if they were. We you think. know, just to kind of pick out uh, <laughs> the the, the never ending debate there. Right. So what I'm saying is, there's been research that shows that blowing out bad teams is as predictive as squeaking past good teams uh they're all professional football teams with the possible exception of the dolphins when josh <laughs> rosen starts for them i actually i actually don't think this version of the patriots offense is is one of their bad I, in fact i think this is sort of the weakest their offense has looked in a while which is kind of ironic considering they look like they're on their way to going 16 and 0 but um, I mean, just looking at that run game, you know, yes, they're leaning on the run, but they're not running nearly as effectively as any of those other teams I mentioned, you know, 3.2 yards per carry compared to, you know, the Vikings and Niners are up above, you know, 4.7. Um, Sony Michelle doesn't look that great. Um, but that being said, they're winning. They're getting all these wins and they keep you know, changing the personnel that Brady's throwing to. I mean, it's like uh, it, Antonio Brown was on their team. Josh Gordon was there. Now he appears gone for the season. Now Mohamed San, Sanu's there. I mean, like eventually they'll get all the pieces in place and Brady will get comfortable with those receivers. And then, you know, who knows? Um, so I think Brady still has a great ability to play within the scheme that's drawn up to him, drawn up for him and, and he gets rid of the ball very quickly and he doesn't take sacks and he doesn't throw interceptions. And that's going to go a long way, especially when you have a defense that's that good on the other side of the field. So Jeff, which of the two undefeated teams do you think is going to lose first? This, the schedule is much harder for the Patriots coming up. So are the Patriots going to lose before the Niners do, do you think? I, I would actually say the Patriots because of their next game, I think going in, Baltimore, who runs a very unusual offense and uh, always a tough place to play. I mean, going into Baltimore, and I think Baltimore's really good. So, whereas San Francisco, I think, has Thursday night uh, against the Cardinals. Right. Yeah, statistically, that, that makes sense, Jeff. Because our model has the Patriots only 57% to beat the Ravens next week and has the Niners as 75% to beat Arizona. But if you look at the odds of going undefeated, the Patriots' odds of winning all of their remaining games are much higher than the 49ers. Uh, we say there's an 8.9% chance that the Patriots win all of their remaining schedule. And uh, for the Niners, that's only about 1%. San Francisco has Monday night, excuse me, San Francisco has Monday night Seattle after Arizona. So that is potentially problematic for them as well. So we're going to do something new on the podcast this week. We're going to do a draft of the teams we think will win the Super Bowl. So we're gonna. Okay, do <laughs> so this. we're going to. So we're gonna draft the teams we think are most likely to win the Super Bowl. We'll each get eight picks. So we'll draft twenty-four total teams. So you have eight chances to be right about a team winning the Super Bowl. And because we're only picking twenty-four of the thirty-two teams, no one has to pick the Jets if they don't want to. Why? They can, why, though, why if someone wants you, to pick the Jets, why would you use the wow. Jets as your example there? I mean, clearly, just as offense. an example of a lower rung. First of all, we know someone picking, who's going to take the Jets. <laughs> we pick twenty-four. I mean, there's teams, always a last pick, and of those twenty-four, 
there's probably about 15 that have no chance of winning the Super Bowl. We'll, we'll pick them anyway. There's always surprises in the playoffs. Okay, so we're going to do a snake draft. Our producer, Grace Lynch, has randomly set the order. The first pick will go to Jeff. Wow. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, well, I already, I already said this. I think I have to yeah. pick the Patriots now. It would be crazy not to. They're playing the AFC. I mean, clearly looks like the weaker conference at this point. So they, they have a smooth path to at least go to the Super Bowl. Well, sure. But then they have to win it, which they haven't always. I also disagree with that. But really? I'll save that. For you money. disagree okay, with the AFC right. being weaker? Well, with the the idea that it's a smooth path or there's no obstacles, I think a certain Mr. Mahomes <laughs> would have something to say about that. <laughs> oh, but yeah, I want to. Just... I don't want to telegraph a pick. <laughs> well, y- do you have the next pick? You have the next pick. We almost already know that they have two playoff games in Foxborough, standing between them and the Super Bowl, and winning playoff no, games true. on the road in Foxborough is incredibly difficult. Well, you know. Sounds like Neil thinks that the Chiefs can do that, though. <laughs> I'm going to take the Kansas City Chiefs wow. with my wow. number two pick. Wow. Oh, my God. I am going to win this so what a reach. Oh, wow. Wow. You could have got them what? on the way back. Yeah. <laughs> well, I felt boxed in by my, uh, by my previous statement. <laughs> Perfect. So I'm going to. I'm just going to dig in and double All right. down. Number one, New England. Number two, Kansas City. Number three, me, San Francisco. Obviously. I liked them almost immediately. Love the defense. I've had the defense on my fantasy team the whole time. So, you know. And this is so great because with my next pick, I'm picking New Orleans, who has the second best chance in our model of winning the Super Bowl. See, I was kind of hoping you wouldn't take them on the the sandwich. The literal best (laughs) chance left. I... I'm going to take with my next pick. I am going to go with a model, and I'm going to take the Green Bay Packers and Aaron Rodgers. Wow. Little Rodgers magic. Terrible pick. I don't think that's a terrible pick at all. Oh, I've seen so many Packers seasons that had so much promise go down in in flames at at home in the playoffs even. So, you know. But do you know what the the key difference was there, Neil? All those games were coached by Mike McCarthy, who is gone. That is true. I I think he was actively harming Aaron Rodgers' career um, with his coaching. That is true. I I think I wrote something to that effect. (laughs) You haven't seen the Matt LaFleur Green Bay Packers, which is clearly an improvement because I think most coaches would have been an improvement. So, okay. Jeff, you've got the next pick then. I'm going to have to take Sarah's Minnesota Vikings. Wow. The picks have really gotten bad. Wait, you guys. What? this is amazing that I'm you're gonna so win this down. So Do you know how annoying so this sounds to a Jet fan that you're just so down on the 6-2 and two Vikings who look pretty awesome? Like, what... What what is they the, do not look awesome. They what, lost what to you a Bears them, team you that is so incompetent. You want them to be eight? No, that that's all you want. You you only accept undefeated as to qualify your team as good. That's entirely untrue. My team has let me down in every conceivable way, and I know that they will do it again. And so I I know that that six and two record is a paper tiger. This is just uh, such such bias on your part, Sarah. Such bias on my part. I know okay. it's it's like come on, they're good. Whatever. Why can't you just? Why can't you? You're thinking just like a fan. I am a fan. What the that hell? they're good. Okay, whatever. Who are you picking? Do you know who has pick, the had the highest quarterback rating going into last week? I now notice that he's slightly in second. Kirk Cousins. I'm into this pick. I'm behind it. My other pick will be the Baltimore Ravens. I've been a believer in this Ravens team 
since before the season. They were my sleeper pick to win the Super Bowl, so I'm going to stick with them. I think I like Lamar Jackson. I like that they're doing something unusual um, with this run attack. I think it's very hard to scheme against. The defense, maybe not the Raven defense we've seen in the past, but certainly still quality. I like that pick, Josh. Yeah, I do I too. had my eye on that. That's the first you know, good pick either of you have made. Yeah, you know that if Sarah had her eye on it, then <laughs> it, it's a good, that pick, is a good pick, according obviously. to Sarah. <laughs> Um, all right. So now we're getting down into the real, uh, kind of dregs. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to take, I'm going to take the Houston Texans right now, even though I have no confidence in them and their ability to win in the playoffs and in Bill O'Brien in any way, shape or form. But, you know, Deshaun Watson is capable of, of all things. And I'm putting my faith in Deshaun Watson wow. for this. <laughs> capable of all things. Yes. He's <laughs> the second best quarterback in the league. You know, if we're, if we're going down to teams that have a decent chance of making the playoffs in our model, it's like it was down to one of those two AFC South teams. And I don't think Jacoby Brissett and the Colts, as much of a fan as I've become of him, are going to win the Super Bowl. But I'll let others pick that. So I make that pick. So Sarah. I know you're not going to pick the Colts. So yeah. I. <laughs> But I figured you would. You know, I'm not going to. Uh, I'm going to take Carolina, and then I'm going to take Dallas. I was high on Carolina until I saw them give up 55 points to the Niners on Sunday um, in a game fair. I thought they actually were going to win coming off the bye, and that was wrong. Uh, quick fact so. check. They gave up it was 51. 51. <laughs> 50, 51 points. All right, Neil, back to you. Wait, okay. wait, wait. We uh, just let her slide that Dallas pick in there with no <laughs> criticism at all. Wait. You took Dallas? I did. I wasn't even paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> A key nice. component of the draft. You slid Dallas in? I took Dallas. Oh, my God. I yeah. can't believe you would do that. <laughs> Why? Um, well, because did I had my Dallas? eye on yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> okay. ooh, all right, I'll set something up with you. All right. I'm going to take the Philadelphia Eagles. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Then we'll really be locked into yep. a death battle yep. here yep. Uh, as to who will win. So, yeah, the Eagles, just uh, two seasons removed from winning the franchise's first ever Super Bowl. Oh, yeah, that has a lot to do with their performance this well, year. Well, cool. I'll sure. say, when you have that championship pedigree, oh yeah, Carson Wentz, you know, wow. just a few uh, games away from uh, turning around, sure. going on a hot streak. His teammates are asking for Nick Foles back, so... No, 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 they got rid of the teammate who was asking for Nick <laughs> Foles back. Uh-huh. <laughs> fly, Eagles, fly. E-A-G-L-E-S, Eagles! They need uh, they need to get healthy, and they probably need some pass defense. That seems like that might help yeah, it them seems, a little bit. Yeah, it seems important. Like maybe a cornerback? All right, who you got for your next two picks, Jeff? Oh, boy. I, I, you know, I was going to not take this team at any cost. I know who you're going to take. Take the Jets. Take, take the Jets. And was down on them before the season. But I, I'm going to have to take the L.A. Rams, even though I, I don't like them at all. Um, I'm not a big fan of Jared Goff. He has played really well in the last two weeks against some horrible teams who they presumably will not be playing in the playoffs. They are better with Gurley. It's funny how we knock the uselessness of running backs and all that. But when he was out, that offense looked terrible. Um, I, I don't love them, but it's a value pick. We have them at 2% to win the Super Bowl. Um, and then my other pick will be the Seattle Seahawks. Oh, good pick. I was hoping they'd fall um, to Russell me. Wilson. Yeah. <laughs> Russell Wilson, you know, before we got, you know, sidetracked by these other narratives, there was a lot of Russell Wilson MVP talk. He has played great this year. They're still 6-2. and two. I mean, 
They're, I think don't sleep on the Seahawks. I like that pick. That yeah. was a good pick. Ugh, begrudgingly. Okay. Neil. I am going to take – NFC heavy. Yeah. Yeah, you got to diversify your conferences. Um, I am going to take the Colts who have not <sighs> I thought you were gonna... picked. So now yeah. I have both. I thought you were going to – I am guaranteed to have an <laughs> AFC South winner in my pocket. <laughs> that means – Maybe less than nothing. Oh, it means absolutely nothing. <laughs> I really thought you were going to skip them since you just bashed them, and I thought I, I would get them. I also should say I'm not guaranteed because um, the wonderful Jaguars have a chance. I'm sure we'll talk about them later. So I'm going to take – oof, man. I, ugh, Everybody good There's no gone. good picks. There are no good picks left. I, I can't take the Bears. I refuse to take the Bears. Um, I'll t- Wait, I guess isn't Mitch Trubisky have, your yes, fantasy quarterback? He is this week. I'll take Jacksonville, and then I'm going to take Buffalo. All right, who you got next, Neil? So wait, who did you pick before Buffalo? Jacksonville. Oh, my dreams Sorry. of the AFC South Sorry. Well, you can still dashed. take Tennessee. You know, I'm going to take the Detroit Lions because I have a very soft spot for this team. I feel like this is one of the most, um, you know, crapped on fan bases and uh, just generally franchises in uh, in pro sports. And they're actually having a pretty good season. Nice. All right. Who you got next, Jeff? I was going to take the Lions. So, uh, you know, I'm scrambling here a little bit. I don't like any of these teams, obviously. I'm going to have to go with the full Los Angeles sweep and take <laughs> oh, no. the other team that this great city doesn't care about. <laughs> <laughs> the team LA really doesn't care about is the LA Chargers. Maybe they turn it around. They've had a lot of injuries. Philip Rivers, oof, I don't know. I mean, I guess they have the highest upside remaining, so that's what this pick is based on. And then I have another one. Yeah. Um, I'll take. <laughs> you sure do. Ugh, gross. I guess the Titans? There you go. Why not? Ryan Tannehill. (laughs) Okay. Let's speed through these last five picks. Rapid fire. Yeah. Rapid fire the last two rounds here since there's nothing good left here. I'm going to go with Dub Bears. Oof. Sorry. I am going to take Oakland. Yeah. Oakland. That seems. Yeah. That's not terrible. Um, And I'm going to reach for Arizona. They are looking better. They are getting better. So that's that's my sleeper pick. All right. right. <clears throat> I'm going to take the – speaking of high upside, I'm going to take the Cleveland Browns. Oof. Nice. <laughs> they have to turn this around eventually, yeah. right? Well, yeah, maybe. All right. Last pick, that. Jeff. Who you got? Who is your – who's oh, the who is, uh, team I mean, irrelevant? Like this, this is why you put me in this position so that I would take the Jets to go on a nine-win run I, here. I can't speak for Grace, but yeah, probably. <laughs> I can't do that though. So you can. Why just, not? Who are you going to take? Just Denver? give me the Pittsburgh Steelers. Oh, I don't know. Wow. They looked the- like they were going to lose the Dolphins last night, but they did. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Mason Rudolph learns something right now and becomes an elite quarterback. Well, that was quite a draft. This is sort of a long game since well, well, I guess we'll be able to we'll know which teams don't make the playoffs, so we'll be able to evaluate our teams again when the end of the season rolls around. And that's really sad that we were in a Super Bowl draft. We were taking teams that. Almost certainly won't make the playoffs <laughs> yeah, was, for like our last like four picks. That's that's my fault. I suggested doing twenty four picks. So you know, live and learn, draft and wish you hadn't. Uh, all right, let's leave that there. Today's episode is brought to you by ButcherBox. One of the best aspects of ButcherBox is how convenient it is. 
a box of 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage breed pork, and more shipped free right to your door. It doesn't get any easier than that. But Thanksgiving is right around the corner, and if you're hosting, things can get stressful. Do either of you guys host Thanksgiving? Definitely not. I might be doing it this year for the first time. I'm a little intimidated. Oh, wow. Well, I host every year, and uh, it's one of my, it's like my only fancy meal that I like to cook. Um, and it's really fun. But, Jeff, to make it easier, you might want to consider ButcherBox because ButcherBox can help this season. New customers can get a free turkey in their first box. ButcherBox is making the experience of cooking a Thanksgiving meal better. Get your turkey delivered to your door instead of dealing with long lines and crowded aisles at the grocery store. And like their beef, chicken, salmon, pork, and scallops, the turkey you'll be serving from ButcherBox was humanely raised the way it's meant to be with no added hormones or antibiotics ever. Take some stress out of your schedule this holiday season. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash takedown today and get a free Thanksgiving turkey plus $20 off your first box. That's butcherbox.com slash takedown for a free Thanksgiving turkey plus $20 off your first box. Butcherbox.com slash takedown. Last week, Houston Astros assistant GM Brandon Taubman was fired after an incident in which he yelled at three female reporters saying, thank God we got Osuna. I'm so fucking glad we got Osuna. He was referring to relief pitcher Roberto Osuna, acquired by the Astros while he was serving a 75-game suspension over claims of domestic violence. The incident was first reported by Sports Illustrated's Stephanie Abstein. The Astros' initial response painted Abstein and Sports Illustrated as smearing Taubman and the organization. Quote, The story posted by Sports Illustrated is misleading and completely irresponsible. An Astros player was being asked questions about a difficult outing. Our executive was supporting the player during a difficult time. His comments had everything to do with the game situation that just occurred and nothing else. They were not directed toward any specific reporters. We are extremely disappointed in Sports Illustrated's attempt to fabricate a story where one does not exist. Abstein's accounting of the event was corroborated by several eyewitnesses, and the Astros eventually revised their statements and, finally, fired Taubman. The incident, both the team executive weaponizing a player's history of domestic abuse and the front office's reluctance and rampant denials of the incident, have led to questions about the culture of the Astros. Here are some headlines in the wake of the Taubman saga. The Houston Chronicle says the Astros just don't get it. The New York Daily News says the Astros can only blame themselves for the controversy surrounding their reporter taunting exec. And The Athletic says Taubman saga exposes longstanding questions about the Astros culture under Jim Crane and Jeff Lunau. These headlines suggest that this wasn't just an issue of Taubman's bad behavior. Neil, how much do you think that the Astros management as a whole is responsible for the fallout? Well, I guess there's two components to it. There's kind of the short-term component of their response to the incident and um, how they made it way, way, way worse uh, with their response to it and then just kind of kept doubling down until they were basically – Forced kicking and screaming to fire Taubman and issue an apology days and days later. And those are like a hundred percent their problems of their own making. Uh, and, and the way that they, for a, for a franchise that supposedly prizes gaining information and kind of trying to figure out, uh, you know, deeper understanding of things. They allowed someone, someone unnamed, by the way, um, in the organization to craft that initial response, smearing Epstein 
and then put it out into the world like an hour after the original um, story was was published, uh, and then allowed that to sort of be their very first you know official word on it. Just says a lot, I think, about the way that they managed this and just hoped that they could craft their own reality about what had happened, and then that it would go away, that people would kind of accept it uh, and and accept their side of the story and not believe what the reporter said. Then a lot of these other headlines that emerged afterward tried to kind of paint a picture of this being endemic to the culture of the Astros and kind of the way that they go about doing their business and maybe even the way that a lot of these teams that have internalized this very kind of ruthless, sabermetric, cold and calculating, potentially dehumanizing way of running a team, uh, that, that something like this was inevitable. And I'm not totally as sure about that. Do you buy that, Jeff, that the culture of sabermetrics, the culture of sort of reducing people to numbers has is makes them more insensitive to situations like the one with Osuna? I mean, I, I just don't know enough. Like, you would have to almost work for the Houston Astros to know whether, like, that culture exists. Um, I will say in terms of dealing with the media, this is, like, the second incident. If you look at what happened earlier this year with uh, barring the Detroit Tigers beat reporter from talking to Justin Verlander, which you really can't do. You can't just say a reporter can't ask a certain player questions because they you don't like the quest you don't like the reporter or the player doesn't like the reporter so i mean there that, that's a little bit of like a you know second strike against dealing with the media but in terms of this incident i mean it was just like a pr fiasco to like blame it on the reporter um and come craft up with the story that she was fabricating you know what is not a good time to do that when it happens in a room full of other reporters who all immediately were like, no, that's not what happened because we all watched it happen. And uh, the funniest thing about Taubman is that he yelled it like they said six times. Apparently he had a cigar in his mouth and he was just like yelling this nonstop. So it was obvious to everyone in the room what was happening. She wasn't um, – Stephanie Epstein wasn't you know, fabricating anything and it was clearly corroborated. So to put out that statement was just like a disaster. And also like – who would have been happy with Osuna? The the thing that made the the least sense, I think, in the in the immediate aftermath uh, of the report of all of this was just the idea that someone on the Astros side would be happy with a guy that almost blew their season by giving up that home run to DJ LeMahieu and only took a kind of a miracle um, home run from Jose Altuve in the next half inning to win them that uh, that pennant. There, there, I, I. Would It would never have crossed my mind that there was somebody in the Astros organization that would have had a thought other than, geez, we really dodged a bullet. Osuna sucks in the aftermath of that game. There is one other angle that's been bothering me about the story. The way it was initially presented was that Taubman randomly targeted female journalists in an almost blanket sexist way. But that's not really the full story. The specific reporter targeted by Taubman had been publicly critical of Houston for signing Osuna, and she had frequently tweeted out the phone numbers of domestic violence hotlines when Osuna would enter a game. I point this out not as a justification for what he did. He had no business yelling at that reporter, and in my opinion, he absolutely deserved to be fired. But the story needed that context to explain what actually happened And I think it's important for journalists to understand the consequences for advocating for something that's a part of the thing that they're covering. 
Again, and I can't stress this enough, she 100% did not deserve to have this jerk scream at her. But her advocacy made her a part of the story, whether that story was fully reported on or not. Journalists today seem to feel more emboldened to blur the lines between reporting on an issue and taking a stand on that issue. I'm honestly not sure what the right answer is there, if that's something journalists should have the, the right or the ability to do. But when you become part of the story, it does affect your ability to report on that story. Should a reporter feel emboldened to take a stand on something they're writing about? It's kind of impossible not to nowadays, um, especially with social media. You know, your your views on certain topics are more public than ever. And uh, I think she was – where is that line? You know, is someone's Twitter account – um, just a place for their own personal thoughts and feelings. You know, if she if she was tweeting out those domestic violence hotline numbers, I mean, that's a she's a it's a free country. She's free to do that. You know, within her her First Amendment rights. And so, you know, I don't know. I I kind of disagree that she made herself a part of the story because uh, I think Taubman made her a part of the story. You know, he didn't have to do what he did uh, and just decided, again, for literally no reason. It made no sense. Osuna had had blown a save. Like, why do you even do that? It, it's, it's insane. Um, but I agree that it's easier than ever to kind of blur those lines. And, and I think also it was easier to uh, kind of take a neutral stand on things and report the view from afar when every reporter in a major league locker room was a white guy. You know, I mean, it's it's when you have nothing to lose from from taking a certain stand or there isn't like a power structure positioned against you, then, you know, it's a lot easier to be apolitical, I guess is what I'm saying. But this is something that directly affects. I mean, one in three women are affected by domestic violence. And so I, I think that this the the Astros statement and their behavior toward it indicated that they don't care about that and that there are a lot of people in that locker room that don't care about it. And it is something that a lot of people in the wider world do care about. So beyond this specific incident between Taubman and these reporters, what is the role of the league as a whole when it comes to domestic violence in the first place? Neil, how does MLB address domestic violence allegations versus, say, performance-enhancing drug allegations? Well, yeah. So, I mean, I think that that is at sort of the larger core of this issue. Just putting aside, you know, Brandon Taubman, the fact that Osuna is on the Astros and people have pointed this out is in a way due to the fact that he had been suspended for domestic violence and therefore was people use this term distressed asset uh, that, that he came to the Astros at a cheaper cost than otherwise because he had done this and, and the Astros and every team knew that there would be some kind of fan negative fan response uh, to whatever team decided to acquire Osuna. And they sort of felt like they could weather that and kind of just pretend that it wasn't a problem and that people would eventually stop talking about it, which is funny because when I see Roberto Osuna in a game, the f- only thing I think of, the first thing I think of is he 
is a domestic abuser, you know, and I think there's a lot of fans out there. They underestimated the, the number of people out there that think of that when one of these guys is in a game. That's interesting to me. Is that the first thing you think of with Aroldis Chapman? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and Addison Russell. I mean, there's like a long list of players that you can't feel good about, you know, uh, watching them perform because you know what they've done. I'm not sure that a lot of that everyone remembers that about Aroldis Chapman. Like it's been a couple years. And I think that I think the people forget people forget easily when it's something they want to forget. Yeah. And it's not easy to confront this every time. And so I think it's easier for people just to pretend it's not happening. Yeah. And, and to your original question about the, the suspensions, you know, um, Osuna was suspended 75 games, which at the time was one of the longest ever. I guess it still is. Jose Torres has been suspended for a hundred games. Uh, that's, I think the longest. If you compare that with performance enhancing drugs, you know, it's 80 games for a first offense. So that's already more than Osuna got for domestic violence. It's 162 games for a second offense and then a lifetime ban for a third. It's such a complicated issue, but the fact that um, you only issue 75-game bans, you don't issue postseason bans, and that's a huge part of this that, that I didn't mention earlier, is that Aroldis Chapman is a good example, too. Teams are acquiring these guys to be able to use them as closers in the postseason, which is the most visible time of the, the MLB season. And the suspensions don't apply there. And so, uh, of course, it creates these perverse incentives to try to, if you're a contending team, go after one of these guys, get them at a discount compared with, with maybe what their market value would be otherwise, and then use them in these incredibly important game and put your own fans in a position where they have to root for someone who's done something terrible. And eventually create a situation like this where you have uh, uh, an idiot like Brandon Taubman say something like that uh, after a game and have to confront it. And then the Astros just made that way worse by still refusing to confront it. The way that MLB treats PED use is is interesting because it's something that they can control, right? They test for it. They have a setup for it. They have a hierarchy of you know offenses and and how that works because they have some control over it. There is no test for domestic abuse. Police have to be involved really before anything happens unless someone is reporting directly to MLB, which isn't the normal way that things go. So, you know, domestic violence is still way underreported in society at large and in athletic organizations. And none of us know how to deal with it. And so I don't, I'm not surprised that MLB can't, has fumbled around on this. I I am surprised that they don't, if they have a postseason ban for steroid use, why they wouldn't do that for literally anything. For anything where someone is is hurt by one of their players, why wouldn't the suspension include the postseason? That's like such an Well, easy I should thing. clarify that it's uh, so if you violate in performance enhancing drugs, it's an automatic disqualification for playoff games, and that's not the case for domestic and sexual abuse. Um, but yeah, it, it does kind of create these these problems, and you know that because you said, like you said, the the level of underreporting that for it to even kind of rise to the surface of legal action or a suspension by the league it has to be like really bad you know i mean that sort of like speaks to the severity of it so the astros are up three to two in the world series game six is tonight in houston astros fans are obviously 
thrilled that they came back from that 0-2 deficit. They are on the cusp of another World Series. And players on the team, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge George Springer fan. I really love Jose Altuve. So how, as a fan, do you reconcile bad behavior by one player with, you know, your favorite other players on the team, you still want them to succeed. How do you deal with a front office that you maybe don't like, but the team that you love? What do you do about that as a fan? That's a great question. I mean, I know that there's a lot of Astro fans that are disgusted by what happened and hate the fact that it kind of cast a pall over the World Series um, and love the players on the team because they are so likable. You know, Jose, is there anybody more likable than Jose Altuve uh, in, in baseball? And, you know, I think the players themselves even, you know, have been kind of put in this position where they, they're not the villains, but they are, they know that people are rooting against them because of things that are beyond their control. And I saw a quote, um, I, I forget which player uh, said it, it may have been unattributed, that were just like, screw those souls in the front office this is about us oh yeah I saw which is too, a great yeah. attitude to yeah. take because that's i mean that's the correct way to look at it i think you know the players didn't ask for this maybe they have benefited from the presence of someone like osuna and maybe that's something to grapple with you know the idea that do players have a responsibility to say something and kind of stand up for a team not signing someone like that but at the same time each player is trying to make their own career and do the best that they can you know, in the short time that they have as a professional athlete. So I I think that in in general, we can kind of view the players maybe distinct from the the larger organization and the ownership in the front office. I will say, Sarah, as a fan, it is a sort of helpless moment because, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, you're going to stop rooting for that team. You know, like you take the Mets. I was personally upset when they re-signed Jose Reyes after, after reading about his incident, which happened when he was on the Rockies. Um, and I think he was banned. I think he got the 52 game suspension for that too, or he was, or whatever the first one was. And, you know, this is a guy who used to be probably my favorite player on the mats, but, um, the options are what stop rooting for the team. I mean, I didn't really actually need any other reasons to, to despise the Mets ownership in the front <laughs> office, but fair we'll just tack that on there. I do think as we were going, as we were looking through players accused of domestic violence in Major League Baseball, which um, not a very uplifting uh, research assignment. I was reminded that Miguel Sano had been accused of, of of assaulting a woman and he was not suspended. The witness testimony was contradictory, whatever. Something happened in that incident. And I have almost completely forgotten about it. I don't think about it. Because what am I going to, what do I do with that information? I mean, it makes me like him less, obviously, but I think it is easier for fans to say, to just sort of write it off and, and not remember that it happened because it's difficult to grapple with. I think, I think, you know, again, this, there's a lot of factors in here and, and some of it is how much attention the media puts on each case, you know, like the Ray Rice story obviously got huge amounts of attention, whereas like the Greg Hardy story you know, didn't. And, and part of that's based on, you know, the, who the player is and what his reputation was before. And, you know, but that, that same, that same thing 
unfolds with steroids, you know, like with you talk about Alex Rodriguez, it's the first thing that comes out of everyone's mouth that he was, you know, used PEDs. David Ortiz, it's basically forgotten. He'll probably go to the Hall of Fame because we've forgotten. forgotten. I bring I bring it we up all the time. I know this about Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, everything that's happened to David Ortiz in the last couple of years, I mean, it it won't be the first thing that we talk about when his name comes up on the on the Hall of Fame ballot. Where it certainly will be for A-Rod though. Yeah, and maybe one of the um things here is that this is a a small early step along the path of stigmatizing this type of behavior. Uh, when it comes to the Hall of Fame, you know, if we're going to hold something like performance enhancing drugs, which, you know, hurts the spirit of the game, but doesn't actually hurt it. it, it, Beyond that, it's it's not a um, a particularly significant crime in in the in a moral sense or anything like that. Um, Then we should and invoke the character clause. Oh, the character clause in the Hall of Fame. that somehow still lets people like Ty Cobb in. I think that that should be a conversation when some of these guys get up for the Hall of Fame, and and it should be a factor when it comes to judging someone's career every bit as much or more than some of the steroid chatter. Well, there is a lot going on in the story. Thank you for hanging out with us as we grapple with some of these extremely complex issues. We felt it was worthwhile to dive into, especially as the Astros are on the precipice of another World Series win. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Neil, get us started. Sure. So uh, this is a very special rabbit hole because um, it has a list that contains a player whose name is literally Rabbit. Oh, that is special. Which is great. Um, (laughs) Every rabbit hole is special, I want to make clear. This should be the final rabbit hole. (laughs) So we noticed that uh, Fernando Rodney was pitching in the World Series for the Washington Nationals. Um, and he's a former twin, right, Sarah? Sure is. And also former, like, a million Everything? different yeah. teams. That, former that every for. team. He'll, be, he'll <laughs> always be a Tampa Bay Ray to me. Although I was disappointed to learn that he actually hasn't pitched for the Rays in a long time. <laughs> for some reason, I thought he was on them uh, much more recently. But anyway, so he's on the Nationals 2019 World Series. He also pitched in another World Series, the 2006 World Series for the Detroit Tigers 13 years ago. Uh, so we're kind of thinking, like, is that the largest gap? That has to be one of the largest gap between a player's uh, first and last World Series appearances. Well, it wasn't, uh, technically. So Willie Mays appeared in the World Series 22 years apart, which is crazy. Uh, Roger Clemens was in uh, the World Series 19 uh, years apart. Uh, Herb Pinnock, Jim Cott. Uh, Jim Palmer. These are all some some names on there. Yeah, even Babe Ruth uh, appeared in the World Series uh, 17 years apart, uh, his first appearance being as a fresh-faced 20-year-old with the Boston Red Sox, and then his last one being at age 37 uh, with the New York Yankees in 1932. But anyway, uh, so maybe Fernando Rodney's 13-year gap, not the biggest. But what about guys that only made two World Series appearances in their entire careers. Well, Rodney moves up the list in that regard. You have Jim Cott uh, at 17. He only made two World Series. Uh, and then a few guys at 16 and and uh, 14 uh, years apart, including the immortal rabbit 
Marinville, Moranville. I don't know how to pronounce the last name. Uh, it doesn't matter. He Pretty just sure goes by a Hall Rabbit. Of Famer. <laughs> Tony Gwynn also on that list, a, a little more well-known name. Uh, he appeared in the 1984 and 1998 World Series, so 14-year gap for him. But Fernando Rodney, 13 years between World Series. That's uh, one of the the top 10 gaps of all time among players that only made two career World Series. He's ahead of Bill Buckner, who appeared in the 1974 World Series, and then again in the ill-fated 1986 World Series, 12 years apart. So, you know, we're thinking about what does this say about certain players? Can we extend this to other sports? And the sport that kind of came to mind for me about players that might have the potential to be in, uh, you know, large gaps between their first and last finals appearance would be the NBA because there are players that play a long time. In fact, the largest gap ever uh, in between finals appearances belonged to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who appeared in the 1971 and the 1989 finals and a bunch in between, but that's an 18-year gap between uh, finals appearances. Still not Willie Mays level, uh, but it's up there. And I was thinking about players that, you know, Abdul-Jabbar is a star. Tim Duncan is a star. Uh, but some of the lesser players that have appeared in finals, uh, NBA finals many, many years apart. Uh, and the two that stood out for me are Sam Cassell, Longtime point guard in the NBA. He appeared in the 1994 NBA Finals and the 2008 NBA Finals uh, for the Boston Celtics. Uh, that was 14 years apart. And then Eldon Campbell, a uh, big man in the league. He was in the 91 Finals and then again in the 2004 and the 2005 Finals. And I think there's a common thread about these kinds of players that, that kind of show up in this. Fernando Rodney, he's a, he's a fireballing reliever uh, and, and, that type of player, Octavio Dotel is another player that was the old holder of the, the longest, uh, or most teams played for record. These are like players that teams, contending teams can always use. They feel like a super specific niche. And as long as they can do that, as long as they can throw a baseball really hard and, and withstand the mental pressures of, of closing out games, there will be some team that calls upon them and, and calls upon them to play important games even. And, and I think that also goes for somebody like Cassell, who was a point guard, you know, kind of this battle-tested floor general type uh, player, uh, or Eldon Campbell, who was really, really tall. Uh, <laughs> and if you want a long career in sports and and want to appear in uh, championship or important games, I guess. Uh, the lesson here is that you should be one of these guys that has like a very specific niche that needs filling. Every team needs it. There aren't that many people on the planet that can do it. Uh, it helps to be tall if you're right. in the NBA. Is it actually better in MLB to be a reliever? Do you have more opportunities at a World Series than if you're like Mike Trout. Sarah, Oliver Perez is still playing in baseball. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. a great example. Yeah, that, <laughs> right. that's, that's another great yes. example. <laughs> that's your yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, uh, it, it kind of cuts against this that, that the players with the largest gaps ever are the Willie Mays types and the Babe Ruths and and uh, even lower down the list, Joe DiMaggio is Those on there. were different times. Though, it was also. different times, yeah. but also, I mean, yeah, it makes sense that legends and all-time kind of inner circle Hall of Famers will be on that list. But we don't necessarily expect Fernando Rodney to be up right, there yeah, yeah, next exactly. to them. I mean, the only way that you're going to have a gap like that seems to be either be an all-time legend, it's a little tough to do, <laughs> or be one of these like, you know, super specific specialists. Well, it makes sense, right? Because you're going to get picked up at the trade deadline by a contender. That's right. happened to Rodney like multiple seasons. So he's going to get a chance more than... Poor Mike Trout, 
whose team is never going to make the World Series unless they get better around him. So it's better if you're pulled in by an already good team than if you're the cornerstone of a bad team. Yeah, and we've mentioned when, I think, when Trout signed his extension, we talked about how difficult it was for a singular baseball player, even one as good as Trout, all-time great, one of the best ever, to kind of single-handedly will a team into playoff contention or World Series contention. Uh, And to your point, Sarah, it's much easier to join a team that already is good, but do something that's really important for them. Uh, Although Fernando Rodney in this World Series has an ERA of 9.00. Yeah, giving a Grand Slam to Alex Bregman will do that. Yeah, right, exactly. (laughs) Backbreaking Grand Slams, he's he's there for it. Yeah, he's fine. He's fine. I hate to interrupt this, but I just really have to read this one passage from Rabbit Marinville's Wikipedia page. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just because... First of all, I love old-timey baseball anecdotes, but it says Marinville was known as one of baseball's most famous clowns <laughs> due to his practical jokes and lack of inhibitions. When he was oh, appointed no. manager of the Chicago Cubs in 1925, one of their worst seasons, he did not change his behavior. One night, he went through a Pullman car, dumping water <laughs> on players' heads, sleeping oh. players' heads, saying, no sleeping under Marinville management, especially at night. Oh, sure. (laughs) (laughs) I was sleeping. Not long after that, he went outside the street, outside Ebbets Field in Brooklyn, mimicking a newsboy hawking papers, and he cried out, read all about it, Marinville fired. And so he was the next day. (laughs) He did that before he was uh, fired. He broke the the story. A lot to unpack there. (laughs) Rabbit Marinville was crazy. Um, I think we established that. Dumping waters on players' heads, saying no sleeping, and uh, doing newsy impressions. But what a guy! That's how I want to go out as a as a journalist. I'll break my own. I'll break my own story. Yeah, he just was trying to yeah. get out ahead of it. He was, just, he was he a pioneer in the same manner as some of these other um, uh, players and managers that go into the media afterward. Wow, rabbit! We might have to do a whole rabbit hole on, on rabbit, rabbit. <laughs> Thank you, rabbit, for your contributions to our weekly segment. <laughs> All right, that'll do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and be sure to review and rate the show. It helps other people discover the program. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time. <laughs>